<laughs> well, as they're uh, heading out, if you wouldn't mind grabbing your Bibles and turning to Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25. And uh, it's the third book in the Bible. And it's the third of the five books that we call the Pentateuch, which were those books that were given to Moses. Or Moses is delivering this message to the Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land. And uh, Pastor John has been walking us through Genesis, which is kind of like the story of the beginning of it all, but then also the story of how God is calling out his people, right? We've been focused in on Abraham and how God has called out Abraham and he's drawing him to himself and then makes a covenant with Abraham to he's going to have descendants that will be his people and God will be their God. And then we have the story of Exodus where they're enslaved and then they escape out of Egypt. And now Leviticus is the story. It's not really a story, but there are a series of laws and um, ways of living life that God gives to his now called out people, these descendants of Abraham. He's giving them a system by which to live to honor the Lord, to respect him as holy. How can they live in his midst and still be his people where he can be their God and live with them and they with him? And I want you to, to take note too, I say this to the kids often, that the Bible, and we have to see it this way, is like a window into seeing the character and the nature of God. And so every time we read through these stories, whether it's a story about Abraham or it's a series of laws or it's a, a recounting of miracles, you should be asking this question is, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? Or what does it teach me about this world? Right? The Bible is going to be that window by which we can peer those, through those curtains and see who God is. And so we'll be asking some of those questions this morning. And Chapter 25 of Leviticus deals primarily with what's known as the Sabbath and then also the year of Jubilee. Now, we're not going to be able to read the whole thing, but just parts of it. And uh, you may have guessed it that I really enjoy this passage because it's about Jubilee and my daughter's name is Jubilee. And yes, we did name Jubilee after this passage about this idea of what Jubilee is. Now, to be honest, you know, my, my name is Joshua, and then my wife is Jolene, and then we have Jeremiah and Judah. So by the time we get to Jubilee, we had better pick a J name, otherwise she'd just feel left out. And the J names in the Bible for girls are predominantly evil women <laughs> that you don't want to name your kids after. So we're pretty boxed in, but I think we chose a good one. And in fact, when I was telling our family and, and others about uh, picking Jubilee as a name, uh, my brother says, Jubilee, why are you naming your daughter after the weakest of the X-Men? 
And so if you were a child of the 80s or 90s or just like your Saturday morning cartoons, you might remember the X-Men, right? You got like Magneto. He's cool. He can bend stuff like metal with his mind. And and then there's like uh, Cyclops can shoot laser beams out of his eyes. And then, of course, Wolverine, right, with the big claws. These guys are awesome superheroes. And then there's Jubilee, a teenage girl in a trench coat with a bad attitude that shoots sparkles out of her fingers. I mean, that's what it is. You're watching this great fight scene and everybody's like robots' heads are flying off and then there's Jubilee like sparkle fingers. Doesn't do anything. And my brother goes, why are you naming your daughter? Jubilee is lame. And I said, well, Jubilee's name has nothing to do with teenage angst or sparkle fingers. And so he asked the question, well, then what does it mean? I'm glad he asked. And I'm glad you asked this morning as well, because that's what I hope to discover. What does Jubilee mean? So before we read our passage, I'd like to ask the Lord to give us guidance and some instruction so that he can illuminate his word to our hearts. So would you pray with me to begin our time? Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we have your word in front of us. What an incredible privilege it is. May it come to life here this morning, not through anything I say, but just through your Spirit's work and power in our hearts and in our minds. May only truth be spoken. If I say anything in error, Lord, may it just fall flat to the ground. And Lord, may you use your word today to change us, to mold us. We open ourselves up and we ask. We ask for your wisdom and your grace upon our time. And Lord, we we ask that you would encourage us and change us today. Amen. So you can begin reading with me in Leviticus chapter 25, and we're going to start in verse 8. Verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Now, we're going to pause right there because I know you're like, what? So everyone, hold up the number seven. I know it's an interactive sermon. I'm the youth pastor. I get to do this. So everybody, hold up the number seven, right? So if you were to read Leviticus 23, 24, and 25, you would be shocked by how many times God squeezes the number seven into those three chapters. It's everywhere. And why the number seven? Why seven? Well, God created everything, right, in six days and then rested on the seventh. So the number seven is this image, this picture of God's creation, the finished work of creation. And so it's kind of this number of completeness. And it's always to remind the people that he's the creator, we are not, right? To remind us where we come from. We have the breath of God in our nostrils He breathed into us. We did not just show up. And so seven was the beginning of this system by which God wants the people to remember what he's done and who he is. So you have seven days in a week with the seventh day being the Sabbath day where God commands the people to take a Sabbath. Just as he rested from creation, they were to rest and to trust in the Lord. And and it was a command to rest. Right, with the death penalty being the consequence if you broke that command. 
You know, early on in the Israelites' history, there's a guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and the people are like, what do we do? You're not supposed to pick up sticks. And God says, kill him. To remove that evil from us, because what it showed is a lack of trust in the Lord. So we have seven. You guys all lost your sevens. Let me see the seven again, just so I know you're out there. Seven is, and so it's seven days of the week. But then, here in uh, Leviticus 25, the paragraph we didn't read, one through seven, is God establishes a Sabbath year. So every seven years, that seventh year is supposed to be a Sabbath year, where it's not a rest from all work, but the land gets a rest. You're not supposed to actively farm it. You're not supposed to till it. You're not supposed to plant things on purpose. You're not supposed to do anything. You just let the land grow what it grows in that seventh year. And you had to survive off of what you've stored up. And by what just kind of grows naturally, you can eat the produce of the field, like apples and things that grow on trees around you. But you're not supposed to be actively farming in that seventh year, that Sabbath year. So then in verse 8, here's what's happening now. God says, take that seven-year Sabbath year, and when you've done seven of those, where's that number seven again? There it is again. Yes, thank you. That seven of those, you're going to have another special year. So it's seven times seven. You didn't know math would be this morning, but there's a math test. The answer's in the verse. So seven times seven is 49. That's right. So every 49 years, you're supposed to have this new thing this jubilee. And so you're like, well, what are we supposed to do for that? Glad you asked. Let's keep reading. So starting in verse 9. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. There's the seven again. On the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field." In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the numbers of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So here on the Day of Atonement, which is the tenth day of the seventh month, you're supposed to get out a big trumpet, and you blow the trumpet, and you declare that that following year, the fiftieth year, is going to be the year of Jubilee. And again, once again, for a second year in a row now, you don't do any active farming in the year of Jubilee. You're not out there planting and sowing and reaping crops. But now what's unique about this one, this seventh seven, is that it's a year of setting those who are captive free. 
It's a return to family. It's a regaining of what was lost. It's a year of forgiveness. A year of removing the debt. A year to return to the Lord. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of liberty. A year to reset and to rest in the Lord. It's a year of joy. A year of joy. And if you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I'd want you to write down is that Jubilee is for our joy. The Jubilee God gives to us for our joy. God is building joy into the pattern of His people. It's built into the regular life cycle of what He wants His people do to do to live holy and honorable lives before Him. He's giving them a system of life that includes a celebration. It includes a party. It includes a year of freedom, a year of trusting Him, a year of joy. Have you ever thought about that before? That God cares about your joy? Think about that for a minute. He cares about your joy. He commands it, even. He plans for it. He structures life so that you could have joy. Let's not pass over this too quickly. That God doesn't just care about your safety, doesn't just care about your usefulness to His plan, how you fit into what He's doing in this world. He doesn't just care that you're alive and there. He cares about how you feel. He cares about your joy. See, He rescued His people out of Egypt. He's giving them the promised land. He's establishing them as His people. He's defended them against enemies, fought in wars for them. He's provided food out of the sky, water out of rocks. He's done countless miracles to bring them to the place that they're at. And then now, as they're listening, one of the laws in which God gives to His people to establish them as His own is a year of jubilee, a year of forgiveness, a year where they can praise God with their joy. Your joy brings God glory. Ever thought about that before? Your joy is part of His plan. Your joy is what He's been working towards partially. He built it into the system for His people. So if we take our Bibles and we use it as this window, we can peel back the curtain a little bit. And one of the things that we can see is that the God on the other side is a God of joy. It's part of who He is. He is filled with joy. So to be in the presence of God is to be filled with joy. To be near to God is to be filled with joy. God established just a taste of that joy in the year of Jubilee for His people. To have a jubilation, a year of forgiveness, and a year to remember that He is joyful and He wants us to be joyful as well. But let's pause here for a moment. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that God wants us to put a fake smile on our face. He doesn't want us to pretend to have joy when in reality we don't. Because in this life, He knows better than we do that this life can be filled with pain and struggle. And some of us are experiencing that even today. Where you hear me say that God cares about your joy and your response in your head is, I don't think for me. Maybe He's forgotten me. 
But let me give you the encouragement this morning that God has not forgotten you and He does know how to take your sorrow and turn it into joy. It's what He does. You may not know how, you may not know when, and and you don't see any way He can do it. Well, that's why He's the God that does miracles. He does things that we don't know how He does it. He can walk on water and multiply bread and fish and calm the storm. And He can take your sorrow and turn it into joy. The question for you is, can you trust Him? When you're in that season of suffering and you're going through that trial and tribulation and you don't feel the reality of the jubilee in your life, can you trust Him that it's coming? Can you trust Him with it? And if you're holding on barely this morning, let me give you this one verse. Just if you walk away with nothing else, take this, put it in your pocket, and just remember it and hold on to it on those long, lonely nights. This is from Jeremiah 31, 13. It says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. Hear that. He says, I will. That's God making that promise. Not an I might, not I hope to, not maybe. He says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. This is the exchange that the Lord makes. It's part of why Jesus came to this earth. is so that He could bear our sorrows and endure our pain and take our sin upon Himself so that in exchange, He could give us His joy. That's the deal that He made for us on the cross. And so you just have to believe in Him this morning. Your joy is part of the Lord's plan. It's part of your salvation. And if you don't feel it yet, then trust that your jubilee is coming. It's out there. So jubilee is for our joy. But let's look back at our text for a moment. Look back down at Leviticus 25. And I want to skip down to verse 35. And as I would read, I want to look at it from a slightly different perspective. This time, not from the slave who's going free or from the one who's regaining their land, but look at it from the other side of the person who's doing the freeing. Who's the person who owns the land that's giving it back? Who's the person that's surrendering up their servants? So let's read Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 43. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. 
See, for every person that is set free in the Jubilee, there's a person letting them go free. For every piece of land that is returned back to its previous owner, there is a person letting that land go. Think about how this might work. Every 50th year, you just had to do this big reset. You could be born and grow up in a family and plant a particular field. You cultivate it. You grow crops. You dig irrigation. You dig for wells. You bring water in. You weed it on a regular basis. And then one day after decades of you taking care of that land, you have to give it back to somebody you've never even met. That person's dad sold it to your dad 40 years ago, and now you've got to give it back? You're like, wait a minute, I, look at what all I've done. That doesn't seem fair. What about all my work? I worked hard for that. Or maybe you had a neighbor that had some really bad, difficult times, and, or maybe they were just really foolish. They made some bad decisions with their money and they go into incredible debt and the only way to get out of it is they just kind of give themselves to you as a servant to work in your field, to work in your house, to do things with you know, your livestock or whatever it is and then one day you just let them go. One day you just let them and their family go free. You start to think, well man, that kind of messes with my plans. I was doing something with that. I was working this. And now they just get to go? It just kinds of ruins what you wanted to do. Now I know that you're supposed to make your deals and you're supposed to plan your transactions around the Jubilee. So let's not get that wrong. God does tell them they should plan for this. So you only sell your land at so much value before the Jubilee. If it's a few years, it's not worth as much. If there's a lot of years, it's worth more. But... I'll tell you, it probably was still difficult. Even if you did plan it out that way, it's still hard to let go. So we've seen that the Sabbath and the Jubilee was in part to teach the people that God was the creator God and that he is the one that owns it all. It's his land, not yours. They're his servants, not yours. It's his you know, plan and purpose for the ground, not yours. The land belongs to God, no matter how many wells you dig, how much irrigation you bring in, or how much sweat equity you put into that, it still belongs to God. And God knows that our natural tendency is to hold on to things and to try and take place of God in our lives. Isn't that what we've been doing since Adam and Eve? Where Adam and Eve said, okay, I hear what you've got for me, God. I see all these blessings. But this one thing that I want to do, let me take that and I will decide what's good for me. Not let you decide what's good for me. I want authority. I want autonomy. I want to be my own man, my own woman. This is mine. Right? And we see this in all the kids. Anybody who's ever had children or worked with children, you know that at some point they snatch up that toy and they say, it's mine. It's mine. I don't want to let anybody play with this. It's mine. We like to control things and hold on to them. So God gives the Jubilee to build into their life an opportunity to release, to let go, and to remember that God is God and you are not. The land is his, the workers are his, the prophets are his, your life is his. And it's an opportunity for you to trust in him, 
to trust that He is a good God. He is a good Father who knows how to give good gifts. And He knows that sometimes it's a good gift for you to let go. So here's more interaction. You guys got to play along here this morning. I want everybody to like put your coffees down, otherwise it'd be a mess. But make two tight fists. Make fists. Just, and you have to hold them until I tell you to let them go. But I want you just to squeeze your fists together. And if you're at home, play along. God is watching. He knows what you're doing. So make tight fists and don't let go. Because see, I think in much of life, this is what we do. We hold on so tightly to the things that are around us. And we just hold on and we keep squeezing. We live life as if we're dangling off the edge of a cliff and we're holding on by our fingertips. And we say, if we let go, we're going to fall. I don't know what's below me. I can't trust. I don't see it. I don't know. So I'm going to hold on. And we squeeze tightly to the things of this world. We have our money and we say, it's mine. It's my money. I need to hold on to it. We have our time and the things that we put our our efforts into and we say, it's mine. It's my money, my time. These are my things. Keep squeezing. Don't let go. I know it hurts, but keep squeezing even harder. We have our plans and we say, they're mine. They're my plans. We have our hopes and our dreams and we hold on to them. We have our friends and our family and we squeeze and we squeeze and we hold on, we hold on. We want control. We want to be in charge. If we give up our authority, then who will? We, we fear that somebody will come in and take advantage of us if we give up our authority, our autonomy. We hold on to our loved ones. We could say, who could take care of them better than I could? Nobody could. And so we hold on to our children, our family, our friends. We hold on in this life. And here, just like the Israelites were given this opportunity to let the land go, let the slaves go, let the debt go then in your life here's your chance let go let go and just breathe just breathe and i encourage you keep your hands up for just a moment it's just a sign to the lord that you trust him that you're willing to let go of those things in life that we cling so closely to we say, Lord, they're yours. They're yours. They belong to you anyway. I cannot control them. I cannot manage this. I trust you. So with your hands open, I encourage you, listen to this poem by a poet named Martha Snell Nicholson, who was a woman who suffered from four incurable diseases, and she suffered much in life. She was bedridden for decades, And her husband, who was her caretaker, suddenly dies and leaves her with almost nothing. She was desperate for help her entire life and had pain every single day. She never had a day without pain. And she wrote a number of poems, and this one was called Treasures. So I encourage you, keep your hands open and listen to this. One by one, he took them from me. All the things I valued most. Until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting. Lift your empty hands to me. So I held my hands toward heaven and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. 
And at last I comprehended, with my stupid mind and dull, that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. There is a cost to jubilee. What is required is that you let go. A surrender and sacrifice are needed for this to be a success. There is no jubilee without trust. There is no freedom without someone setting the captives free. There is no restoration if we are greedy. There's no celebration for your selfishness. We're not going to throw a parade for your pride, and there is no jealousy, or there's no joy in your jealousy. But if you find, you will find treasure in your trust. You will find the treasure of the Lord if you trust him. Because to be near to the Lord is to be filled with joy. But to be near to the Lord will cost you your life. So sadly, to the Israelites, they thought that cost far too high. Not once in Scripture do we ever read of the Israelites actually practicing the year of Jubilee. Now, it doesn't say, like, they might have, but it's never recorded. And I doubt that they ever did because we do know that they didn't practice the year of the Sabbath because God judged them for not practicing the year of the Sabbath. And that's why he sent them to Babylon for 70 years because he wanted to give the land 70 years worth of rest for all those Sabbath years that they skipped over. And so if they're not practicing the Sabbath year, they're probably not practicing the Jubilee either because they thought the cost was too great. They had to hold on to their farming, to their working, to their slaves, to all that they had worked for. But listen, this morning for you and I, when we decide to let go and to think about the cost that's in front of us, I want to remind us of this seeming contradiction that's not a contradiction. That it is completely free to follow Jesus Christ. Completely free. And yet, when you follow Jesus Christ, it will cost you everything. See, in Isaiah 55, 1, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Completely free. There's no price. Jesus says it in Revelation 21. He says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. No payment is necessary because you don't have anything to pay with. Everything that you have was first given to you by God. That's why in Leviticus, over and over again, it says, I am the Lord your God. This is my land. I give it to you. In Romans 11, 33 to 36, it just perfectly puts it there from Paul when he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, Jubilee has a cost. But it's a cost that you cannot pay. That's why Jesus Christ came and paid it all for you. Jesus paid the price that you could not pay. Jubilee is only possible because Jesus came and died on the cross. He paid it all. So from that standpoint, it is free. The cost has been taken care of. 
So whatever you think you bring to the table, whoever you are, wherever you come from, or whatever you think you can't provide or can't do, hear the invitation this morning to just come and believe. Receive him as a free gift. He's done all the work on the cross, and so now you can follow him completely free. Come with nothing and receive everything in return. But then at the same time, realize that when you come, it will cost you everything. Jesus said it in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, following Jesus will cost you everything. When you try and save your life and hold on to whatever you think you can control and govern in your life, you will lose your life. But if you choose to let go and to trust, this is the opportunity in Jesus to trust in the Lord, then you will be forgiven. Otherwise, you will stay enslaved to the sin of self-worship, selfishness, self-control, and pride. You have to let go and give it all up in order to receive what Jesus has bought for you. And when you give it up, when you give up your plans, your finances, your relationships, your hopes, your dreams, when you lay them down at the cross, what you'll receive in return is your very soul. So yes, it costs you everything, but you will receive infinitely more from the Lord. So I'm sure, though, there were some difficult days if they were ever to do the Jubilee. And if we were ever asked to do something similar, that would be hard. There would be a real cost, a real loss. Things are going to change. People would move. Land would be given up. Plans altered. It's never easy to surrender control and let go. God knows this. God knows this is hard. This goes against our nature, just what we've been struggling with since the beginning. And so he reminds us in these times of struggle, when we seem to fight against this, and we start to lose hope, he gives us a few passages, I think, that we can, we can hold on to as truth in our hearts that encourage us to be able to let go. Some of my favorite were 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. I read this passage to a man on Friday who's slowly passing away. His heart is giving out, his lungs are giving out, and he knows that he is near to death. And so he reads this and hears this with those kinds of ears. May you do the same. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. See, we may look at our lives and we see the pain of loss. We see the sacrifice of surrender and we fear losing control. But do not lose heart if you're in that season today. Because that season is not wasted in your life. It is not for nothing. It is preparing in you an eternal weight of glory that you can't even imagine in the hereafter. So see with eyes of faith 
not with the eyes in your face and trust in what God is doing. Or another one, Psalm 56, verse 8. A simple passage that we can remember when we're on, in those moments of fear and frustration and when we're ready to give up. Psalm 56, 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? See, this reminds us that God is there in those moments. He knows when it's difficult to let go, when He's pulling those things out of our lives. He knows it hurts, but He's there on those sleepless nights. And you've got to just imagine the Lord sitting by your bedside and those tears are falling out of your eyes. The Lord is collecting those in His own way. He collects those tears and He takes note of them in His book. He is watching your pain. You have not been forgotten. He knows that the cost of the joy in the Lord is real and it is difficult. Letting go of your life, letting go of your loved ones, letting go of control is hard. But Jesus wants you to know He is with you and it is worth it. See, one of my favorite uh, parables is when Jesus says uh, a man is walking in a field and he looks out in this field and he sees a treasure that's buried there. So he goes home and it says that in his joy, he sells all that he has and he buys that field. See, it's in his joy that he gives up all the things in his life. The cost to buy the field was real. He had to give all that stuff up. But what he gained in return, far more valuable in the Lord. So Jubilee is for our joy, and the joy is worth the cost. And now the third and final point that I'll make this morning is that Jesus is our Jubilee. We've already hinted at this already, but Jesus claims to be our jubilee. At the beginning, I started by saying that the Bible is this window into seeing the nature and character of God. And this Sabbath was God establishing a pattern for the people to rest. And we read in Hebrews that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Well, we can also see that the jubilee was given for the joy of the people, and it was an invitation to trust in the Lord. The very identity of God was tied to the idea of Jubilee. If you read through the passage over and over again, you'll see how God says, I am the Lord. Do this, obey this, because I am God. This is who I am. God doesn't just give us arbitrary rules and laws and regulations. He doesn't just make stuff up. The laws are there the way they are because God is who He is. It's because of His nature and His joy that He gives us the jubilee. They exist as they do because God exists as He does. And so Jesus, in His own words, in His own way, says that He is our joy and He is our opportunity to trust in the Lord. I think of when John the Baptist was imprisoned and he sent his disciples to go find Jesus to ask him that question, are you really the Christ? And Jesus' response to the disciples was to quote out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He kind of paraphrases that and says that, yes, I am 
the year of the Lord's favor. I'm here to set captives free, to provide forever freedom, to be that final source of healing and life. And then one of the greatest mic drop moments of all human history is when Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he goes to a synagogue, and it's the custom just to read a Bible passage out of the scroll. And so Jesus takes the scroll of Isaiah, and again, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he finds that passage on purpose, and he reads it to the people. And so I want to read this to you, and you don't necessarily have to turn there, but just hear Isaiah chapter 61 and listen to it as if you were in that synagogue on that day wondering, who is this? What authority does he have? Who, what is he doing here? And here's what Jesus reads. And I'm going to read all the way through verse 3 for us, even though Jesus seemed to stop at 2. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus reads that passage, and then he just sits down, and it's like, boom, drop the mic. And everybody's just in awe. What is he saying? He is this man. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence, Jesus says. And they're in shock. Jesus is the jubilee, the eternal jubilee, that Isaiah was looking forward to when all captives would be set free, all debts would be forgiven, and there would be joy forevermore in the presence of God, free for all to receive? That is exactly who Jesus is. He is our jubilee. So are you enslaved by your sin this morning? There is freedom in Jesus Christ. Are you lost and looking for a home? Jesus is your home. He is where you belong. Do you feel forgotten and alone? Jesus knows you. He loves you. And He is your joy. Maybe you're in a season of mourning and you're walking through suffering right now. Jesus is your jubilee and He will exchange your sorrow for rejoicing. He will bind up the brokenhearted and He will give hope to the hurting. Even though you may not feel it right now, The facts are the same. Jesus is our jubilee. He is in our presence, in our midst right now, offering you this free gift. But like the farmers of old who had to let their fields grow wild, they had to trust that God would feed their children, they had to believe that God knew what He was doing, they had to trust that when they let these slaves go that things would turn out okay, that the cost wasn't too high, that God knew how to handle this. We, when we trust in Him, will receive the treasure of Jesus Christ Himself. And the joy that he brings. So can you trust him enough to wait? To wait for your jubilee.
So one more poem as we begin to close. Again, by Martha Snell Nicholson, as she reminds us that while we are waiting, there is a purpose to our pain, and there is promise for our patience. The promise is Jesus Christ, our Jubilee. This one is called The Thorn. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, My child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurts sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. It is in the face of God that you will find joy everlasting. God wants you to know who he is. So he established the pattern of the Jubilee to remind you that he is a God of joy and he invites you into that joy. He cares about you and he cares about your joy. And he knows it's hard to let go. And he knows that sometimes it feels like he's giving us thorns that pierce our heart. But to be near the Lord is to be filled with joy. And sometimes he uses those thorns to peel back that curtain so that we can draw ever closer to him. Because he is a treasure that is worth it. God wants you to know who he is. He is Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. He is our jubilee, our joy. May we never forget it, and may we trust in him today. Let's pray. Lord, so many years ago, you gave this command to a people that we've never met, but I'm sure they struggled to understand exactly how it would work and what you were doing in it, just as we sometimes struggle to know how to apply it in our lives. But Lord, you gave the jubilee because you care for our joy. You love us, and you gave your Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to live the perfect life, to never sin, and yet take sin upon himself to bear our sorrows, our pain, and our sin so that you could exchange it for joy. And so, Lord, I pray that we would believe in that message today. May we receive that free gift from your hand of salvation evermore. But, Lord, as we live this life, continuing day by day to trust you in those moments, may you teach us how to let go. May you comfort us when it's difficult and it feels like we may lose it all. But Lord, may we find our treasure in you. And may we see you more clearly. And may you be our joy today and forevermore. We thank you for this gift, Lord. Amen.